0: Isaiah chapter one. Uh, so we've just started a verse by verse study of the book of Isaiah. Uh, it is the third longest book in the Bible, and uh, it's got uh, sixty six chapters, and it's challenging because it's poetic, and it's prophecy, which are um, two of the most challenging genres to understand in all of Scripture, but. But the the neat thing about this book is that um, and and it's part of the reason that I wanted to go here is this book of Isaiah unfolds the nature and character of God in a most profound way. Uh, There are portions of this book and there are sections that uh, I hope will become favorites of yours uh, places that you go um, to uh, meditate on who God is and and the work that he does. And of course the other uh, incredible theme about this is it's one of the most uh heavily messianic books so we see lots of prophecies about the coming messiah and um both his birth and his death and resurrection so uh for all sorts of reasons this is a this is a great book to study and we've just we've just begun to scratch the surface so if you uh look with me at isaiah chapter one that's where we find ourselves and where we left off last time uh we could title the message today the future hope future hope and restoration and uh you may remember, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but what we get in this first chapter is sort of an overview of the whole book. Um, and uh, if you'll notice, even in your, your outline today, those main headings are the main themes of the book of Isaiah. So uh, let us just let me just kind of overview it, and then we'll jump in, okay? So Isaiah, well, actually, you're the student, so I'll ask you. What's What's going on as Isaiah picks up his pen and begins to write this book to us, where he catalogues uh, much of his ministry. What's going on? Uh, t- tell me the context. That's right. That's correct. That's exactly right. Thank right. Right on. So you'll remember that the nation of Israel, after Solomon's rule, started a civil war that eventually divided the country into two parts, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And both of those kingdoms were struggling with idolatry and disobedience. They were not following God. And God brought the prophets to call them back, to call them to repentance and to turning back to the Lord. The northern kingdom failed to repent and God had threatened uh, the judgment of bringing a foreign country in to destroy a large part of their city and to take many of their people back to that nation into captivity. So as, as we parachute into Isaiah, we realize that that's already happened for the northern kingdom. So they are already under Assyrian rule. In fact, th- this is re- really interesting. Um, so this map here, if you look at the yellow line, the yellow line plots the kingdom of Assyria. And you realize that they they were the superpower of the day they they own and run and dominate most of the Middle East, as we can see it here now what 's interesting is there 's a little section right here, this little dotted line, and that little dotted section there uh, let me come over here to the the cheap seats here and we 'll um, so this little dotted line right here you 'll notice that represents an area that hasn't been conquered yet. And uh, what area is that? That's Judah. That's what's left of the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, it sounds like a movie line, but they're surrounded. Uh, You know, and you can imagine if you woke up every morning and that's what your, you know, Google Maps looked like, you would live in fear pretty regularly, wouldn't you? Because these guys have gone and they have dominated Every country around them, and you're the only one that's left. And it and it gets more exciting because your own God who is promising your protection is telling you if you don't repent, that dashed line's going away. I will bring them in and they will conquer you, and they will kill your people, they will destroy your city, they will take your sons and daughters to be slaves and servants in their nation. If you don't repent. So that's the context. That's what's going on. And, and and we see right out of the gate. These are God's people right. We say why would God do this to his people. And the answer is what. Why would God. Why would God threaten this. Because of and their disobedience. That's right. That's right. God really cares a lot. About who you trust. And what you worship, and what you love most of all, and who you live for, and what you follow. And these are his people. These are his promised covenantal people. He has made covenant promises to them. But what is the first provision of that law summarized in the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments? What's the very first commandment? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. New Testament, Old Testament. The Old Testament version goes like this. You shall have no other gods before me. The uh, It's actually, it started, it actually it's repeated in Deuteronomy. We think of the New Testament version is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your. Yeah. And God's not kidding when he says that. And we get part of what we see in Isaiah in terms of the threats and ultimate destruction and discipline that comes is that God is very serious about who owns our allegiance and what we love and what we trust and, and of course you know you, you, you're, you today might not be tempted to go home, cut down a tree in your backyard, take it to the garage, carve it into uh, an Astroth God, or some you know Mesopotamian God, or you know, a little Buddha that you can put in your bathroom or something, you might not be tempted to go home and commit idolatry that way, but as we 've come to understand the theme of idolatry and worship in scripture, idolatry is not just when you pick a, a, a statue and bow down to it and say, "This is my God." Idolatry is when we give ultimate love or trust worship or obedience or allegiance to anything or anyone else other than God. And you know what? Let me tell you how silly this gets. We can commit idolatry by loving a sports team too much. Right? We can commit idolatry by caring too much about our appearance. We can commit idolatry by simply getting angry over circumstances of life that we're not happy about because, truth be told, we're upset about how God is running his universe in some way. So we don't have to have Buddhas in our bathroom to commit idolatry. Um, But that's what we That's what we see as part of the message of this book. So a little bit of a history lesson. These are not in your notes, but uh, from last time, some of you may have missed this. So Assyria rose up as an empire in the early part of the 8th century B.C. 722, uh, that's a red-letter year uh, in your Bible history. So if you don't know 722, uh, mark that down, commit that to memory. That's the year that the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom of Israel, which sometimes we call that Samaria, the region Samaria. And this led to the collapse of the northern kingdom as the people living there were taken off to exile in Assyria. You can read that in the historic book of 2 Kings, verse 18, describes the narrative uh, behind that event. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah initially sided with the Assyrian, with Assyria under bad leadership. And Dave alluded to that, uh, these alliances that um, the southern kingdom were making. Now, now, honest question, if that's what your map looked like, would you, would you be tempted to To make some sort of treaty with the enemy? Absolutely. Uh, But of course, who's on the side of the Israelites? God is. Is that any match for God? No. But again, under bad leadership, under leaders that did not love Yahweh, uh, this, this treaty was made. But under a man named King Hezekiah, you guys remember Hezekiah, around... 701 B.C., he joined alliance against Assyria. And then under a king named Sennacherib, Assyrian king Sennacherib, Judah was invaded that same year in order to punish Hezekiah for his changed military stance. The Assyrian king destroyed most of the cities of Judah and captured over 200,000 people. Uh, And you may remember the the famous, uh, this is accounted in uh, 2 Kings 19, where uh, Hezekiah brings in Isaiah to, to seek God's advice. Isaiah told Hezekiah not to fear that God would protect them. Uh, he went to the temple and prayed for deliverance. And that night, God cleaned house by sending his angel to annihilate almost 200,000 soldiers in the Assyrian army. Okay, so that's the history behind the book of Isaiah. So when, when we come to Isaiah. Uh, as it says there in chapter 1, verse 1, Isaiah saw this prophecy during the reigns of four Israelite kings in the southern kingdom. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So those initial kings were not good kings. And that's where we've got this political alliance. That's partially why Assyria is not taking over at that point. That's, that's why they're allowing Israel to coexist without just taking over their... Uh, their situation. Uh, interestingly, uh, Sennacherib's own sons ended up murdering him that same night. Um, <clears throat> or uh, not the same night. It was uh, um, shortly after. It was not, uh, not the exact same night. Um, okay, so the Lord spared Jerusalem, keeping a remnant of people for himself and not destroying all of Judah like Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed. So if you look back at chapter 1, notice notice chapter 1, verse 7. Listen to the description. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. You say, why is the city in that condition? It's in that condition because of that first raid that came. And then Isaiah intervenes, Hezekiah prays, God comes and protects and destroys. And so now they're looking at the land going, what do we do next? And notice verse 8, or excuse me, verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and we uh, we would be like Gomorrah. Um, You know how insulting that must have been to the Israelites to hear them compared to Sodom and Gomorrah? These pagan cities of old that were... Uh, they they were the preeminent example of God's judgment on humanity. And and God says through Isaiah, my people are being just like them. Okay, so let's jump in here now and let's just kind of unpack this first chapter. This first chapter, uh, as I said, sort of unfolds the themes of the whole book. So we'll see the whole book in miniature in this first chapter. So chapter 1, verse 2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared, And brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. So in those few verses, we get an overview of the problem. This this is the occasion for why Isaiah is ministering to the people. So what's the problem according to those verses? Yeah, they turned away from the Lord. Um, Last weekend, I was on a a panel with... um, uh, a guy named Stuart Scott, who many of you know, um, professor at uh, Masters University, and uh, another guy, uh, Tim Keeter, who's uh, one of the counselors at the church I was in. And uh, what, the guy, the pastor, who was asking the questions, asked about you know what advice you know we would give to parents who have wayward children that aren't walking with Christ. Maybe maybe younger children, maybe older children. And one of the things Dr. Scott said was. God can relate. Sons, I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Sons, verse 4, who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. And you know, this is not the, the main point of what Isaiah is getting at, but you know, when we think about Jesus being a sympathetic high priest who understands our weaknesses... Uh, we might be tempted to think even God can't relate to this situation. But here's a, here's a, a very specific example of God saying that he has experiential, experiential knowledge of what it's like when children don't follow after him. So that's the problem. They, they have abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One. Uh, and these are, of course, God's people whom he loves. And uh, and they're rebelling. Now, notice in the second section here, and this is review, or we're getting up to our verses where we stopped last time. Look at verses 5 to 9. God, God is not just like, okay, I'm going to destroy you. Um, look at what he's been doing. V- verse 5. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, Raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. And then the verses we looked at about the land being desolate. What's going on? What is God doing to where this would be the description of his people? He's judging them. Okay. Disciplining them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Isaiah says, uh, as he brings the Lord's message, um, I'm running out of places on your body to discipline you. Right? Uh, Parents, you've been there? You've tried everything you can come up with to try to get that kid's heart to soften and repent. And God says... I've run the gamut of discipline, and they're still being stubborn. Now, what does that show us about our God? What's that? He's patient. He's patient. He's patient. Yeah. Remember what? Remember what the, the writer to Hebrews says? Those whom the Lord loves, He Okay. You see that? Now, now, uh, our young theologians here, you you may we we still may need to convince you of this. But discipline, when it is biblical and godly, not abusive or horrible, but when it is done biblically, is actually an act of love that a parent expresses to their children, right? Because, if we finish the sentence, uh, Hebrews, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And then he goes on to say... uh, You should be happy about that. This is the Keith paraphrase. You should be happy about that because the fact that God is disciplining you shows that you are His His child, His Son. So again, all discipline in the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, right? But those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's why it's an act of love because it's a means of training for our good. So God, yeah, Jack's right. This is a demonstration of God's patience. He's not just... He's not just throwing in the towel and saying, I'm done with you. He's training them. He's disciplining them. He's giving them opportunity to repent. He's making life hard so that his people might look up and say, hey, maybe this rebellion thing isn't so great. But he is a patient father. And he demonstrates his love for his children through discipline. Now, this is hard discipline, isn't it? How long How long did the Israelites have to wait to even get to Palestine to arrive in the promised land and the wilderness right and then what oh we got to go conquer the land okay so then we got to do that right and then we've got all this outside trouble and then we need judges and then we need you know and then so you got all this history. It's like they're finally there. They finally have their temple. They finally have a king after God's own heart. They, right? And God says, I'm going to destroy it all if I have to. And again, what does that underscore? It underscores how serious, how important it is that our heart is set on God. Okay, so they're resistant to discipline. Now, now this is—we talked about this last time. This is really convicting. Look at chapter one, verse ten. What did their rebellion look like? Verse ten: Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of, so-, and this is yeah, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And you know, that must have been very insulting uh, to hear the people of God compared to the pagan people of Sodom and Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Meaning injustice. Verse 13. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. God actually says this. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them so that when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. So what form did their rebellion take? Did they just abandon the whole thing? No, 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 no. Yes. Do, do you see that? They were going through the motions of religiosity. They were bringing sacrifices. They were having their holidays. They were going to the temple. They were going to talk to the priests. They were, they were doing everything that God told them to do. But what's wrong? Their hearts, their hearts are far from God. Right? We see that in the New Testament. This people honors me with their lips. But their hearts are far from them. Right? Um, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. Yes? That's right. Yeah, Jesus had the same message for the Pharisees. You know, you're, you're externally uh, great, but inwardly you're lacking. So, and I think, we talked about this last time, but I think this is one of the reasons why we need Isaiah today. I think that we're no different than the Israelites, I think that we can be tempted in the same way as I know I certainly am. Right. So, so let, let's let's uh, let's bring this into the the 21st century in the context of the church. Okay. Do you ever come Sunday morning and you say all the right things, you do all the right things, you know, you're singing the words, you got your Bible open, but truth be told, your heart is not in it. Right. You ever been like that? I'll put my hand up. I've been like that. That's a temptation. And so we see it is incredibly dangerous to grow comfortable with going through a religious motion or ritual while your heart is somewhere else in terms of where it needs to be before God. The longer we do that, the more comfortable we get, the more comfortable we get the more dangerous is the situation. And that's what had happened. These, these dear people had been doing that for so long, God is disciplining them, and they don't see the problem. And I would, I would just plead with you, and, and, and preach this to myself as well, when you see your heart drifting from where it needs to be before God... Though no one else would know what's going on, because you're at church and you're singing songs and you're involved in ministry, when you see your heart drifting, that that is a um, that is a serious emergency situation. The, the sirens of your spiritual life ought to be going off to alert you to the danger of that that needs to be addressed right away. Um, and again. It's not just Isaiah. You know, Jesus talks about this. The other prophets talk about it. Paul talks about it to various churches. Uh, we need to keep our hearts close to God and and not not develop a, a, a dichotomy between our heart and our religious behavior. Yes? Isaiah goes back to that same thing in chapter 58. He does. hmm No, I appreciate that, and it's it's interesting how this theme develops because we do get more insight as to their motive, like you're saying, and and that that's that's super convicting, right? I mean, you know, when something is really motivating you to talk to God about it because there's something you want, and it's all like, hey, this is this is revolutionizing my spiritual life, but your motive's wrong, right? I mean, you're you're doing it to benefit, you know, to get some benefit rather than uh, to walk with God. So I appreciate that. Yeah. That's right. That had become offensive to God, and he summarizes in verse 17 mm-hmm. the real issue was is not their religious observance, right. but the fact that they were no longer doing the, the heart of what God told them right. to do good. To right. Yeah. To defend the followers from the widow, that comes up in Isaiah guess, several, it times, does. several yeah. places. So that was obviously a prevalent problem in that society. Right. Yeah, yeah, and we'll see that, you're right, you'll see that just a few verses down, that's right. Yeah, 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 that's right, you know, in many ways, um, Isaiah's message, at least on that point, parallels Amos, who whose whole book is about injustice, and, um, you know, we talked last time about, you know, issues of issues of injustice in our time and day uh, today, and, and how our faith in God ought to impact how we think about those those situations. So, yeah, that's right. He does. Yeah, pure and undefiled religion. That's right. So is there hope for I mean God is saying basically, I hate everything that you're doing, even though I told you to do those things. Because their heart is not in it. Because there are these other issues uh, that are much more important than the religious rituals. And um and so we, we get this this description of what is really repentance. In 16 and 17, and again, we won't go into this in too much detail because we looked at it last time, but what does he say? He says, is there hope? Your hands are covered with blood. I hate what you're doing. You know, judgment is coming. There's hope, right? Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And here's the, the verse that uh, Dave referenced. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Those are actions of righteousness that demonstrate a heart that is in the right spot. And it's interesting. Notice the difference. Both verse 17 and verses 11 to 15 describe actions that god told the people to do right god told them to bring sacrifices he told them to pray he told them to go to the temple just like he told them to seek justice and do good but here's the difference here's the difference verse 17 represents what we might call spiritual fruit that's the the actual character righteous pursuits that are the heart of what it means to walk with god whereas the 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 sort of religious underpinnings, the the sacrifices, the holidays, the new moon sacrifices, the the bringing of bulls and lambs and goats, those are only honoring to God in so far as the heart is set on righteousness and trust the way that 17 describes it. And here's the crazy thing. He calls them to repentance. But even as he's calling them to repentance, he says in verse 18, you only have one hope. There's only one hope in this, and this is what we call the gospel according to Isaiah. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be made white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And uh, that's, that's the gospel. That, that's a gospel verse saying God is able to act to cleanse you and help you in your predicament. You see that? God is saying, your only hope is if I act to forgive you and cleanse you. And as they turn to him, verse really 16 and 17 describe the turning to God for help, but the real, the real hope is not in the repentance alone. The real hope is in what God will do to cleanse them and forgive them in 18. I mentioned last time the the description of this. So the word crimson in your Bible there, actually refers to this little guy. Uh, It's a beetle uh, called the Kermes beetle, K-E-R-M-E-S, M-E-S, K-E-R-M-E-S. And it lives on that oak tree called a Kermes oak. And um, you can see, even the, the picture there, you can see it's actually on the wood there. Now, what that little bug was known for, and this, this goes back like 3,000 years, I mean, this goes, um, excuse me, this goes back uh, 3,000 years into uh, before Christ's history. Um, people discovered that you could take that little bug and squish him and get a red dye. And it's what they used to dye garments red. And uh, so Isaiah borrows that here. And the significance, of course, is that this was a day and age where once you did that, once you dyed a garment red with the dye that came from the Kermes beetle, Kermes, not Kermit, he's the Green Muppet, just (laughs) clarify that. Um, Once you did that, it was a permanent uh, operation. You, you could not undo it. We talked about bleach. Bleach was not invented uh, till the 1800s. And um, so there was no way to take a garment that had been dyed red with this dye that comes from this beetle and undo it. You say, well, why is that significant? Because when Isaiah says this, here's what he's saying. Here's what, You need to get this. He's saying, your sin against God is so serious, it is a permanent stain. You can't change it. There's nothing you can do to undo the process. And God says, but I have good news. I can undo it. I can do the impossible. And uh, He uses this analogy here, though your sins are as scarlet, white as snow they will be made though red is crimson like wool they will be and and i rearranged it here so that you could see what the hebrew text looks like one of the things that um, the writers love to do is employ a structure where they rearrange word order to put the center element of of emphasis in the middle of the line and in this case what Isaiah is doing is he's writing it in a way that contrasts the impossibility of what God can do. He can take your sins that are permanently dyed like a garment and he can turn them into something as white as snow. We didn't get snow this season. Sometimes we do. You wake up in the morning. There's been snow overnight. The sun is out. Like the clouds are gone. And the sun reflecting on... The snow is so bright, you can you hardly even look at it. And God contrasts those two pictures. A, a, a permanently stained garment with this beautiful picture of whiteness. Um, and He says, that's what I can do to your heart, if you'll turn to Me. Okay. So there's two choices, right? Look at 19. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. See, Isaiah comes into the ministry at a parenthesis, right? He comes in when that initial assault has happened with Assyria. It's been halted. And now Isaiah is saying to the nation, What are you going to do? Are you going to continue to rebel and and refuse to submit to God? And if so, you will be devoured by the sword. Verse 20 says, Or... If you consent and obey, if you repent, if you turn back to me, you will eat the best of the land. And they're looking at the land going, it doesn't look real hopeful. God says, I will fix that if you turn back to me. Now, so we can see here the, the choices of, th- that we have. And this is, this is going to feel like spiritual kindergarten here, but it really is this simple. God says very simply, if you do what is right, there will be blessing. You'll eat the best of the land. If you disobey, there will be Judgment. Now, the question is, look back at the text. What is the blessing that God particularly says that He will do here? Restore the land. He'll restore the land. Okay? Now, that should trigger something in your head. What was unique about the nation of Israel and the land that they're residing here? That they're residing in. The land was promised by covenant. The promised by covenant. Okay? So... The reference here, believe it or not, when he's talking about if if you do what is right, there's this land blessing. If you don't, you will be judged and you won't see the land. That goes back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So if you just hold your place uh, there in Isaiah and uh, back up to Deuteronomy, all the way back to the beginning of your Bible there. Um, We've got to go back to the time of the law and, and see the background behind this. Because Dave's right. We can't understand what Isaiah is, is saying to the people if we don't understand the backdrop of the covenants, the promises that God has made previously to his people. So, in a, you guys remember what Deuteronomy is? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Yeah, Deuteronomy is, is not an exclamation of excitement like, Deuteronomy! Deuteronomy! Right? It's um, it's a word that means what? Second law, Deuteros, right? Uh, and Namas, Deuteros, too, Namas, law. Deuteronomy is the second law. Um, so what happens is, you remember, as uh, we were talking about earlier, that initial generation of Israelites that received the law at Mount Sinai uh, rebelled and they wandered in the wilderness as part of God's judgment. And so they eventually come to the river. They look over the river. They can see the promised land. And what's happened is a lot of the first generation that came out of Egypt has died. So these are the sons and daughters, the grandchildren of that first generation that came out of Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Now Moses, you'll remember, got to see the land, but because of his own disobedience, he wasn't allowed to go in it. So Deuteronomy, God says, okay... Uh, over the river is the land, you're going to go up on the mountain, you're going to look over the river, you're going to see the promised land, and then you're going to die. Before you do that, I'm going to give you one more chance to address the people. And Moses says, okay. And so he preaches a sermon to the Israelites. It's his last sermon. Before he goes up on the hill, looks over the river, sees uh, the promised land, and then dies. And that last sermon that he preaches is the book of Deuteronomy. You say, well, why would he... It's like, I'm reading Deuteronomy. It's all the same stuff we read in Exodus. Yeah, it's the second law. You say, why is he repeating himself? Because he needs to, to, right? We all have children. We understand they don't... uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, because he needs to. But remember, this is a new generation. The generation that is at the river looking over into the promised land are the sons and daughters and grandchildren of the people that came out uh, out of Egypt. That's how much time has elapsed. Many of them were not at Sinai when God gave the law. Many of them were not there when they, the plagues happened and, and God delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So Moses is addressing a new generation in large part here. Remember, that was a deliberate decision by God because he said that he would not allow any of those right. in that generation except for just a very few. Right. So that continuity of... That's right, yep. So we to start off. That's right, yeah, very good. Okay, so we won't read 27 and 28, but, but to, just look at, I want you to just get the tenor of this, okay? 27 and 28 uh, goes like this. Chapter 27, verse 11. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And he goes through and names the tribes there, okay? And then he, here here's the... Here's what most of the chapters are about. Verse 15. Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image. Verse 16. Cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother. 17. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary. Verse 18. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. 19. Cursed is he who distorts... You get the idea. He's going through the law and he's saying, if you commit these offenses, there is judgment uh, that is to come. Uh, Verse 28, now I'll flip over to chapter 28 now. He says, now it shall be, if you are diligent to obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then he gives the blessings, right? Blessed you shall be in the city. Uh, Blessed shall be your offspring and your body. uh, Verse 5, blessed shall be the basket and your kneading bowl. Uh, Blessed shall be... You, when you come in, and blessed you shall be when you go out. You, you get the idea. You'll cause your enemies to rise up against you and they will be defeated. And he will go out and get, you get the idea. You do what's right. God's going to bring the blessings of the covenant. You do what's wrong and you will see his judgment. Okay, that's the backdrop of what uh, God is telling the people through Isaiah. Now, that brings up, and I just need to mention this. Uh, many of you were here um, a couple of years ago when I went through the book of Hebrews and we talked about the covenants uh, of the Old Testament and how they relate to God's plan. And so what Isaiah is focusing on when he says, if you do this, you will eat the best of the land. You will have the land. What he's talking about is what is called the Deuteronomic or Palestinian covenant. It's the land covenant. It's an, It's really, um, the, the land covenant is really an extension of, of the abrahamic covenant that said i'm going to make this covenant with the people of israel and you're going to get land you're going to get seed and you're going to get blessing the three provisions of the abrahamic covenant we see back in genesis 12 okay so this is just a reminder that what we're seeing unfold in isaiah is god saying hey i was really serious about that land covenant if you keep disobeying i'm taking your land away and that's what that's what he did right he let the Babylonians come in, he let the Assyrians come in, and they took over the promised land that God had given to the Israelites through their disobedience. But, as we're going to see, and, and we, we read this uh, back when we did our covenant study, that God's ultimate fulfillment of the land covenant is not ultimately conditional on the Israelites. He will bring that to pass as we see as part of his gracious and kind provision. Okay? So with that background, go back to Isaiah and let's let's finish the chapter here. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 1, we're back there. Two choices, right? If you consent and obey, verse 19, you will eat the best of the land. Those land promises will come, verse 20. If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then, what's what's the first word of verse 21? What's the first word? How? I want you to underline that or circle that. Because in your Bibles, particularly in the prophetic books, the word how usually introduces a lament. A lament is a section of the Bible that is grieving or sorrowful over some event that's happened. You'll see this in the book of Lamentations. You'll see this throughout the prophets. So Howe introduces, uh, theologians call it a lament formula. Um, How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, righteousness, once lodged in her, but now murderers! Your silver has become dross. You drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. And that gets to the heart of the matter. God rejects their sacrifices and their holidays because in their hearts they are not walking in righteousness or practicing justice in the land. And that's the heart of the matter here. In verse 13, he says, I right. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, he's saying if you're unjust and unrighteous in your heart and then you're doing these religious things, God says, yeah, I, I can't have you do both of those. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's good. I'm sending you there this long so right. the land can have its Right. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of the part of the the calculation of the timing of how far how long they would be away. That's right. Okay. So that, that's what's going on. It's it's at the heart. It's a, it's their heart does not love and follow the Lord. Uh they're walking in injustice and unrighteousness while going through the religious motions. And again, th- these are such good reminders for us in terms of uh, what is true and undefiled religion in the sight of our God, right? According to James. Okay, so here, here we go. Um, verse 24, Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye, and will remove all your alloy. So let's start right there. This is interesting. God's saying, I'm bringing my judgment, I'm bringing my discipline, but what ultimately is his goal? Purity, Purity, right? He's going to refine them. He's going to... And notice, did you notice the buildup of the divine names in verse 24? When God says, I am your only hope, here is what I'm going to do, he throws out a lot of... Uh, The names of God here. Uh, The Lord uh, God. Actually, actually, it's the Lord God of hosts. So we have two phrases there. The word Lord is Adonai, Master. God of hosts is a different title. Mighty one of Israel. God is piling up these names saying, I and I alone are the only hope you have. And here's what I'm going to do. He's not just going to bring affliction. What is he going to do? He's going to bring restoration, purification, redemption. The reference to lie there is interesting. If, uh, those of you that are that are science people, um, fascinating study on lie and what it is today and what it used to be, and you know it, it can actually refer to two different chemicals today, but it actually referred to something different um, back in the ancient day. We don't actually know what chemical it was. But in Isaiah's time, it was, it was a purification agent. It was a cleaning agent. So when God says here he's going to use it, what he's saying is I'm going I'm to cleanse your heart like some chemicals that we use to bring purification to uh, various metals in that day. I will smelt away your dross. I will remove all your alloy. I will make you pure in heart is what he's saying. Why will he do that? Look at, look at 26. Then I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness. A what kind of city? That's what God is after. He's going to purify them. He's going to forgive them. He's going to change them to bring them back to where the nation of Israel, what was the purpose? What, what, was, what was this people of God in the nation? Of, what, what was that supposed to serve? Why did God do that? They were a witness. Yeah. They were supposed to be a light to the world of who God is. God says, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to change it. I'm going to make it once again so that you are a faithful city that accomplishes the work of demonstrating to the world who God is. 27. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Now, we've got to see this here, okay? He says, those who are repentant, the repentant ones will be redeemed, right? They will be restored, just like he said in 18. But notice this, verse 28. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. Those who refuse to repent, there is no hope, right? This is not universalism. This is not God saying, hey, I'm going to fix everybody regardless. He says, if you will return to me in repentance... I will purify you, I will forgive you, I will redeem you, I will restore you, and you have a future. Notice in verse 29 here, Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen for you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or a garden that has no water. The background of this is a lot of the pagan religions that they had gotten into would have these groves of oak trees and they would create gardens where they would go to worship because they thought the, the dying and rising of the plant life symbolized the death birth cycle of foreign fertility gods. So God, so he says there you know you're going to be embarrassed that that's what you were all involved in at that time. Okay? So and that's why he says there the, the end of it will be that they shall both burn together and there will be none to quench them like like a spark coming together with tinder there will be judgment on all of that. Okay? Now, this is a book not just about history, not just about God's people. What's it a book about? It's about God, isn't it? Okay, now if you were paying attention, there were dozens of things that we learn about God and His work in just this one chapter. Okay? So let's just let's just come up with a few of them and then we'll call it a day. Okay? What do we learn about God? Yes, Tony. He demands obedience. That's right. Obedience is not optional. He's jealous for his people. Do you see that? I mean, look at the lengths that he's going to. To try to help them to see. God is jealous for our worship, isn't he? Okay, very good. What else? He desires justice. He desires justice. Okay, God is not impressed when we go to church and go through the motions. What he cares about is during the week... Do we live righteously? Do we promote what is right and just? Do do we engage in acts of service—the orphan, the widow, the the neighbor that needs Christ? All of those things. That's what he cares about. Okay. What else? uh, Wayne? uh, David said they require a broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that we would be holy as God is holy. Yeah, God is really just asking them to mirror. Who he is, right? He's a just God. He's a righteous God. Someone else. What's that? He's forgiving. He's forgiving. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's not, let's not, you know, because if you were even remotely paying attention, you should feel convicted today. Because we know we don't live up to what God is calling us to do. But what does he say? Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be made white as snow. If you repent, there is hope. There is forgiveness. Yes. Yes. He has a plan, doesn't he? What's the plan here with Israel? Yeah. Did you catch that? He's not throwing in the towel with his people. He says there's a future. There, there's, a, there's a coming restoration. In fact, when Pastor Terry gets to Romans 11, sometime in the future, um, we'll see this. Because Romans 11:1 says, has God abandoned his people? What does Paul say? May it never be. And Isaiah is demonstrating the reality of what Paul says in Romans that God is not rejecting his people. There's always a remnant. There's always a, a contingency that will repent and God will forgive and he will restore. What else do you learn? He's faithful, He's faithful when we are not. not. Oh man, we, we just park it on that, can't we? Um, obviously, there are some promises here, land promises and all that. But can we just, can we universalize that for a minute? God is always faithful to his promises. Even when it doesn't seem like it. God will accomplish what he has told you he will. That's true when you're discouraged. That's true when things aren't going your way. That's true when it doesn't seem like God will provide. That's true when a crisis hits. It's true when you blew it for the... 2.7 2.7 millionth time in the same thing, the same struggle and you think there's no hope for me. Whatever whatever the situation, God is faithful to his promises. And we can trust him. All right? Anything else? I like that. It's always about the heart. Yeah, it's always about the heart, isn't it? Yeah. Same way yeah 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 you know maybe we'll, we'll just one more thing and then we'll 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 pray uh, do you see the kind intentional patient enduring hand of your heavenly father in the midst of our sin do you see that whom the lord loves he disciplines he trains right Uh, not to our destruction but to our sanctification to our growth to our encouragement and um, you know obviously isaiah only understood this in in a veil we understand it more fully uh, in the new testament but we have a kind heavenly father who's always at work and he's patient and he's faithful and we can trust him and um, and that means that all things will be okay won't it all right let's pray uh, Father, thank you for this uh, uh, this book and this chapter that helps us to see you more clearly. Uh, we thank you for your patience and your faithfulness to your people. Thank you that when we are faithless, you are faithful. And thank you that we can trust you with all the promises, with all the truths that we know your word uh, reveals to us. Lord, whatever our situation today, might we find encouragement and help in these chapters if that means we need to repent of a religiosity and an external way of relating to you would you lead us to repentance today bring our hearts back to you If that means discouragement and struggle will you encourage us that your kind fatherly hand is behind every situation in life and we can trust you lord thank you for your word thank you for this particular book and we're just eager to learn more about it so we know and follow you more. In Jesus' name, amen.